You're listening to Pasa Chipotle, the show that will take you to discover the edible treasures of Mexico. Episode 7. This week, all you ever wanted to know about two of Mexico's most recognized drinks, mezcal and tequila. What makes them so special and so different? Next, we celebrate the very British side of Mexico and we'll enjoy some lovely refreshing treats just like the ancient Aztec emperors used to do. Hello everyone and welcome to Paz de Chipotle, the audible companion of Sabor, this is Mexican food magazine, the tastiest combo to guide you into the kitchens, markets, streets and traditions that make Mexico an edible paradise. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food historian, cook and author. To find more information about this project, please go to pasdechipotle.com. Find the show on Twitter as Chipotle Podcast. I want to thank all of you for your nice comments and feedback about the show and the magazine. I'm really glad you're enjoying this journey as much as I am. And now, let's get on with the show. With a certain degree of confidence, I can say that Two of the most popular and internationally recognized Mexican drinks are tequila and mezcal. The role in the cultural construct about Mexican gastronomy has been key to the idea that fiery Mexican food must always be paired with throat-burning liqueurs. After all, even Elvis Presley used to drink tequila shots and cocktails like a sailor during the golden years of Acapulco Bay as the most exclusive resort for international movie stars. And who knows, maybe this combination was a curse and a blessing that created a long-lasting cultural cliché. The consumption of spirits in Mexico has a fascinating cultural history because they practically didn't exist before the Spanish conquest occurred in 1521. And the few alcoholic beverages that existed were part of highly controlled religious rituals and typically were neither sold nor consumed freely. But the Spaniards, who didn't have a problem at all with abundant secular drinking, made both indigenous fermented drinks and newly added spirits available to purchase and enjoy for anyone who could afford them. This had a deep impact in the new colonial society, in which indigenous people had to go through a phase of adapting, creating a new relationship with the situation, and they began using them for spiritual cleanses, rituals, as part of offers to saints, and these drinks even had a place at many day-of-the-day altars. A popular Mexican saying exemplifies how distilled spirits mark all sorts of occasions, for all evil mezcal and for all good mezcal too. 
I'm sure many of you have enjoyed tequila and mezcal in many occasions, but do you know what's the difference between them? Is it the taste, the color, the flavor? Turns out that in Mexico, mezcal is the name given to the category of all agave-based spirits. This technically makes tequila a type of mezcal. The confusion begins with the fact that the word mezcal is also given to a specific spirit. There's been a long ongoing debate about the origins of mezcales, specifically because the technology used to obtain them is commonly assumed to be a European import that was introduced after the conquest of Mexico. After all, the use of metal alloys to build kettles, fermenting units, funnels and pipes was practically unheard of for pre-Columbian times. A beautifully illustrated document from the 16th century, compiled by Fray Bernardino de Sahagún, called the Florentine Codex, is one of the most compelling sources of information about life, culture, traditions, and even economy during the complex period of colonial Mexico. In one of the books that comprises this codex, there are mentions about distilled mezcales in the western valleys of Mexico using European technology to obtain them. Mezcal production is one of the many agro-industries that started in the 16th century and it still continues to thrive to this day. The indigenous name for the type of agave that was mainly used is mezcal metal, which is probably why the Spanish used a derived word to call the distilled drink mezcal. There is a place where the earth seems as blue as the sky and the air is thick with sweet and smoky notes of barbecued agave. In the dramatic western plains of Mexico, the state of Jalisco is home to the little romantic town of Tequila, which is the undisputed capital of the nation's most beloved spirit. But this is just one of the five tequila-producing regions. Other states are Nayarit in the Pacific coast, Guanajuato, Michoacán and Tamaulipas. All of them grow the beautiful agave tequilana, also known as blue agave that thrives in hot sandy soils, unlike the bulk of production that requires a slow extraction and fermentation of the sap from other varieties of agave, mezcales such as tequila require cooking the actual heart of the plant. And to do this, the sharp long branches are cut off by a professional known as jimador who harvests and cleans the body or pineapple as it is traditionally called. Then, it is usually chopped and barbecued in rustic or industrial ovens. Then comes the juicing of the cooked plant to extract all the sap and it has a strong deep herbal, bitter and smoky flavor, which is honestly quite undrinkable at this stage. Next, a long boiling process followed by fermenting, distilling and filtering. Although the final product is an extremely young tequila, it can be consumed at your own peril and only recommended if you have a proper sailor's throat. Most types of tequila are aged before and after bottling. If you are wondering how to know which type of tequila is the right one for you, here comes your survival guide to know your tequilas. 
White tequila is the strongest of all. It is sharp and barely aged, has a strong whiplash after drinking it. It is practically crystal clear and is the most commonly used to prepare cocktails. Añejos, or aged, are those that have been nicely resting from one to less than nine years. The deepness of the flavors become richer and they have a less burning sensation in the mouth. The wooden and smoky notes intensify as the color changes from golden honey to amber. And extrañejo or heritage tequilas that have been aged for more than nine years are not only alarmingly more expensive, but they tend to become milder with a softer taste and can even develop sweet notes. Although tequila is commonly paired with rich, piquant and flavorful Mexican dishes, you can always experiment with your own pairings and, of course, appreciate it on its own. Now, let's pause for a second and dig deeper into the history of the use of these wonderful agaves in ancient Mexico, because it turns out that this highly versatile plant was used quite efficiently by the indigenous people. The spines, for example, were often used as needles. The plant's fibers provided strong threads to weave all sorts of carrier bags and sacks, sandals, and even clothes. The sap was used as a sweetening syrup. The pulp was used to make paper. And the discarded parts of the plant were dried, then used as fuel. Oh, but it didn't end there, as the ashes, which are an excellent antiseptic, were also repurposed to treat exposed wounds and even clean their teeth. And now, a bit of mezcal. The regions that produce mezcal are much bigger than those which produce tequila. There are nearly 40 different cultivars of agave mezcalero, and some states like Guanajuato share the production of both spirits. The arid deserts of Durango, famous for its many scorpions, Tamaulipas, Zacatecas, and Puebla, they all have relatively small but appreciated productions of artisan mezcales, but certainly Guerrero and Oaxaca are the most famous producers. Mezcal has a more labor-intense and artisan production than that of tequila. The hearts, or pineapples, from the harvested agaves are cleaned in a very similar way than blue agave, but these are cooked whole in whole barbecues covered with earth. Then they are chopped and ground in a mule-powered mill. The rest of the process doesn't differ much from tequila, which involves boiling, distilling, and filtering. The many varieties of mezcal differ in the type of agave that is used, cooking times for the pineapple, and the aging process. But mezcales have an important distinction from tequila, and that is that they are often infused with different ingredients to add flavors. Some, for example, have honey, orange peel, aniseed, or cinnamon. And in the case of Oaxaca, there is a type of mezcal that is distilled with smoked chicken or turkey breasts, and is not uncommon to also add insects or animals to the mezcal when bottling it. These can be agave worms, scorpions, and even snakes. Mezcal is often served with sweet orange wedges sprinkled with warm and chili salt, while tequila, on the other hand, is commonly served with lime and salt. There is a huge variety of recipes to prepare cocktails with tequila or mezcal, but if you're curious to understand and learn to appreciate these drinks, 
which as you have heard now, they can be produced in many ways, it is well worth trying them on their own. Drink them slow and let these grand spirits speak to you. Salud! We will continue with the show after this message. This podcast is the audible companion of Sabor, This is Mexican Food, a quarterly digital magazine dedicated to the exploration of Mexico's gastronomic heritage and traditions. And I'm happy to share with you the recent release of the summer issue. Under the green cool canopy of the tropical trees in the remote rainforest hills of southeast Mexico grows the cocoa tree, perhaps the only tree that was ever destined to take the world by storm. Of all the products that were part of the Colombian exchange, cocoa's popularity is undiminished and it's more desired and enjoyed now than it ever was in the 16th century when it made its first trip from the Americas to Europe. In the summer issue, a wonderful selection of delicious articles all about cocoa, one of Mexico's greatest gifts to the world, its history and heritage recipes for you to enjoy. You can purchase your digital copy now and enjoy it in all your devices. Go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. Of the many diasporas of immigrants that travel from faraway lands to relocate in Mexico and call this place home, There is one little community that left the shores of its island and moved to the misty mountains of the state of Hidalgo in central Mexico. They came to work and looking for a better future, and in exchange, they gave Mexico some of their gastronomy and even imported their favorite sport that quickly became a national passion. This is the story of a handful of hard-working Cornish miners, their food, and of course, football. In Mexico, the Industrial Revolution had a slow development, so much so that it was first carried by mules. On a very hot day, in the tropical port of Veracruz, in the Gulf of Mexico, arrived 60 Cornish miners, in 1825. The mining crisis in England forced many men to migrate and look for jobs all over the world. But they didn't come alone. With them were investors who shipped 1,500 tons of machinery that had to be painfully moved by a long convoy of 53 wagons, 550 mules and 120 men, who slowly crossed half of the country and made their way into the mountains of Real del Monte in the state of Hidalgo. The Mexican independence in 1810 halted most of the early industrial activity in Mexico, but vast deposits of heavy minerals, silver and gold still awaited in the guts of the mountains. 
Soon after the arrival of modern machinery and skilled miners, the old mining industry was set to rejoin the future. Following the husbands, many women also traveled from sunny Cornwall to settle in the ironically cold, damp city of Real del Monte. And knowing that the best way to a man's heart is the stomach, they wasted no time in reproducing their own recipes from good old England. Because wherever we are in the world, no matter how far, no matter how lonely and homesick we might feel, the food from our homeland will always bring a glowing smile to our faces. But there is another ingredient in this menu, and the Cornish women knew a secret about making the best packed lunch for their men. After all, mining in southern England dated back to the Iron Age, and you are right to believe they came up with a solution to feed hungry men that worked incessantly in the dark, cold, gloomy and dangerous tunnels that certainly are no place for delicate Victoria sponges or cucumber sandwiches. The solution was as simple as it was practical and filling. A hearty combination of beef, parsnips, potatoes and other vegetables encased in a tough crust. This baked parcel required no cutlery, reheating or even clean hands. Death by lead and arsenic poisoning was all too common amongst miners. But this truly rough crust was perfectly inedible and preserved impeccably its rewarding contents. Pasties are indeed the perfect miner's lunch. There are recordings of English meals similar to pasties that date back to the 1300s. According to the Cornish tradition, the wives used to bake their husbands' initials on the crust so that even in the darkness, men could recognize their own pasties, break open the crust, eat the filling and discard the rest. But when in Mexico, add some chilies to your food. And yes, not even the pastas could escape good Mexican seasonings. The Cornish diaspora was so warmly welcomed in Real del Monte that the local authorities granted the construction of a Methodist church and a special graveyard where the tombstones could be oriented pointing back to Cornwall. And soon, the sound of Methodist Cornish carols floated the Mexican skies during the cold, damp winters in Real del Monte. Many miners settled permanently and married locally, and with this, the cultural bridges that only food can build were soon crossed. Mexicans renamed pastis pastes, and quickly embraced them and made them their own by adding parsley, substituted beef pieces for mince, and of course, added chiles. Such was the success of the pastes that they became the staple pick-me-up meal for everyone. The number of fillings increased and many variations appeared, such as corn kernels with mushrooms and cheese, mole and chicken, chipotle and jalapeño also found their way in other recipes. Beans couldn't be left out, of course, and even sweet custard and pineapple made their debut in a sweet pasta. A local motto from Real del Monte says, We will die happy eating pastes because we know it's a true taste of heaven. But definitely not always mining day in and day out. Cornish miners also knew how to have a proper break and what even better than having fun with a cheeky football game above ground. Their Mexican colleagues liked this new and exciting sport so much that they became obsessed with it and the capital of the mining state of Hidalgo became host of the first ever professional team in 1900 and that was the Pachuca Athletic Club. 
Cassidy crowd are at Wembley to see England in the white shirts gain their biggest win ever over Scotland. At first, Scotland attack, but right back Meadows heads away. Oh, keep it up. From that day on, football became the default national pastime in Mexico, and the Cornish Mexican mining community gloriously entered FIFA's Hall of Fame for introducing their national sport to the country. Pastas from Hidalgo also became a darling in the national street food menu. The new edible, warm, flaky and rich crust is the perfect container to deliver pulses of joy to busy commuters. In 2008, a revival of the Cornish heritage in Hidalgo inspired the first ever international pasta festival in Real del Monte. And to celebrate their shared heritage, a Twin Cities agreement between Carnborn Cornwall and Pachuca was signed. With help of the Cornish Cultural Society, in 2014, the world's first and only pasta museum opened its doors in Mexico. Once again, this story proves that food always brings people together, whether we share the same heritage or not, but mostly because it nourishes our ever-changing cultural identity. And this is how England and Mexico became forever united by a shared story of perseverance, love, pastis, and a fervent passion for football. We will continue with the last segment of the show after this brief message. The production of Pasta Chipotle requires hours of hard work and dedication to bring you an interesting and refreshing show. So to keep this exciting project alive, your support is vital. Independent creators like myself bring diversity, empowerment and opportunities to enrich our global cultural exchange, which is why the support of audiences with a passion for knowledge, creativity and entrepreneurship is essential. You can support this podcast by making a monthly donation on this show's page on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast. By helping the show grow, you will also get great rewards, such as exclusive posts and transcripts, delicious recipes, and the chance to choose which topics you would like to hear in future episodes. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast and select the type of donation you want to make. Every donation makes a big difference. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast and be part of this delicious story. There are several historical sources that tell us about the life and costumes in ancient Mexico. Some go as far as offering detailed information about the dietary preferences of certain emperors in the ancient Aztec Empire, who lived in Tenochtitlan, today's Mexico City, and used to enjoy a very unique cold treat. It was something similar to sorbets, but made with snow that was harvested on a daily basis right from the volcanoes Popocatepetl and Ixtacihuatl and delivered freshly to the imperial kitchens. 
This was only possible thanks to the well-organized Pochtecas, who were an elite of long-distance traders and couriers that could cover up the vast network of routes connecting all the city-states in the Aztec Empire. The harvested snow was put in clay pots and carefully covered to keep it from melting and brought back to the imperial citadel in Tenochtitlan. Now, according to Google Maps, on a normal pace, it should take an average person a total of 16 hours and 30 minutes to cover this distance. But considering that each pochteca could run several miles before delivering the parcels to the next courier, this distance could easily be covered in at least half of that time. There were several great markets in Tenochtitlan, and in many of them, delicate cones made of leaves containing snow that was flavored with wasps or wild bees' honey, agave syrup, and fruit pulps. This delicacy was amongst the most expensive items in those markets, reaching the scandalous price of up to 20 cocoa beans, which is quite a lot if you consider that back then a whole cooking rabbit could be purchased for 30 cocoa beans. But powerful emperors could easily indulge in such daily pleasures. Even the Spanish conquistadors had the privilege to sit at the lavish banquets offered by the very last Aztec emperor, Moctezuma II, where delicate desserts prepared with sweetened snow were presented. Luckily, the story of ice streets in Mexico doesn't remotely end there. A few centuries later, in the 1800s, ice creams and sorbets finally made a great debut. Ice factories enabled the rise in popularity of these desserts, and soon regional creations became part of the national cookbook, some with strange but delicious combinations of flavors like burnt milk ice cream served with prickled pear sorbet, avocado, sweet corn and cheese for adventurous foodies, mezcal and figs, or eggnog and raisins if you like strong flavors. But my definite favorite by far is rose petal ice cream. I love its candy floss color and its delicately perfumed flavor. Mmm, happiness in a cone. Although we're often told by classic food history studies that sorbets and ice creams appeared parallelly in Persia and the Far East, the truth is that just because history is usually written from the standing point of those who discovered other cultures' traditions, it doesn't mean at all that similar ideas were occurring in other parts of the world, and often with quite delicious results. So, maybe, next time when you are in need of a refreshment, frappe some ice and add some fruit puree and a dash of agave syrup and enjoy it like a true emperor. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pase Chipotle, a bi-weekly show dedicated to the exploration of Mexico's delicious gastronomic traditions. On the next episode, get your bowls and big spoons ready because we are getting some pozole soup. We'll explore some of the weird and surprising superstitions of traditional home cooking. And last, we'll find out which are the mystical uses for toxic plants in Mexican healing rituals. 
I love hearing from you and reading your messages. Please contact me via email or Twitter. Links and contact details are in the show's description. Support the show on Patreon, the largest platform that connects creators with bright audiences like you. To find more information about the show and Sabor, this is Mexican Food Magazine, please go to pasachipotle.com. That's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe, rate, and share the show. Goodbye from me, or as we say in Mexico, hasta la próxima, amigos. 